Podcasting from downtown Toronto, Canada, it's The Medicine Club, a new podcast about medicine, medical innovation, and medical culture. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Samir Grover. I'm Dr. Kashif Perzada. I'm an emergency physician practicing in Toronto. And I'm a gastroenterologist based out of St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto. And we've got a special event here on The Medicine Club. Today we have a debate with respect to a high-profile public health issue uh, affecting us in Canada with respect to COVID-19, specifically whether mask wearing should be a policy that should be enacted in order to control the virus on a societal level. The contrary opinion would be whether masks should be limited to areas where the virus is present in large quantities and where risk of transmission is high, uh, such as uh, hospitals and long-term care facilities, an approach that uh, has been described as smart masking. The idea for this debate came about uh, on a mutual Facebook group that a lot of Canadian physicians use. There's been open discussion, I think, amongst the public as well, whether masking universally mandated by law uh, should be done as it is done by cultural practice or by law in East Asia. So you have people in Hong Kong, South Korea, and their daily lives wearing masks. We asked two members of the community in the emergency medicine community in Canada to debate this. One of them is uh, Dr. Ken Milne, who is very well known in, in the emergency medicine community as an evidence-based advocate. He has a very popular blog called The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. We asked him to take the contrary position that the resolution basically said, should ma- masking be mandated and universal for all Canadians? There's another doctor, Dr. Joe Vapond, an emergency physician in Calgary, who took on the affirmative that masks should be mandated across the country. And he's an interesting figure. He was part of an environmental group, Canadians Association for the Environment, that helped bring down greenhouse emissions and is very active. And and from Alberta, that's a big deal. We also had as a moderator, Dr. Jen Kwan, uh, who we've had on the show before, who's really been instrumental in getting Ontario to become more transparent with numbers. Her daily figures on the pandemic have become a a sort of a guiding light for physicians and the public alike to monitor the pandemic. And so, you know, I came up with the idea that we should get all these people together um, and try to hash these issues out. A lot of the positions about masking, against masking, you know, it comes down to, you know, is there a benefit from covering your face, uh, from covering droplets that might spread? Is there more harm done if people believe masks give them a free run to go and just go do what they did before the pandemic? Is there harm if we try to get rural communities or marginalized communities who have limited access to masks to wear them? Uh, Does it make sense in all cases? Compared to, you know, more increasing data that shows that masking can be beneficial and that we're seeing a number of countries are getting their pandemics under control with universal masking policies. This is one of the reasons why we wanted to get these sides to engage in a debate. One last thing to note is that the uh, poster that's become the uh, face of this debate uh, is based upon the iconic uh, poster for the Rumble in the Jungle fight of uh, Foreman versus Muhammad Ali uh, from 1974 in Kinshasa. So with uh, no further ado, I'll uh, pass things across to uh, Kashif while he was moderating the debate. Universal masking is probably the issue of the day. Uh, We are going to be debating, you know, and our two brave debaters are going to be going over the resolution be it resolved that mandatory universal mask for, to prevent transmission of COVID-19 be recommended for all Canadians. Now, I'd like to introduce our debaters for the affirmative, um, arguing for against um, universal masking will be Dr. Ken Milne. Uh, Dr. Milne is very well known in the emergency medicine community for his blog, The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Uh, he has tens of thousands of um, readers uh, monthly and weekly. Um, He's a huge authority in our field, and I'm happy to have met him at a conference several years ago, and I'm so happy that he agreed to take on um, this topic. Uh, Dr. Joe Vipond will be arguing for masking. Uh, He is heavily involved in environmental causes, and in Alberta, no less, and his group, um, Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, is partly responsible for massive reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in Canada. Uh, your moderators, uh, Dr. Jen Kwan, uh, who you may know from her excellent posts updating us on the numbers in Ontario and really was part of the big push that led to the release of critical care data here. And I'm hoping we'll get the same for public health data soon. Uh, myself, I'm Dr. Tash Prezada. I'm an emergency physician in Toronto. 
and uh, co-founder of Conquer COVID, uh, which helped with PPE shortages. And Dr. Samir Grover will be directing our question and answer session. He's an academic gastroenterologist at St. Mike's in Toronto and a huge uh, educationalist and simulationist. Um, the debate format uh, is gonna follow a modified Oxford format. So each debater takes turns. Uh, each debater has a chance to rebut and there's no interruptions. It's not like a US town hall crazy, crazy thing. So it's gonna be civilized, it's gonna be Canadian and it's gonna be awesome. Uh, you can ask questions in the Facebook Live question feed. We're gonna be monitoring that and we're gonna pick the top five questions to ask the panelists. Um, so this is basically the format, you know, opening statements, a rebuttal round, um, second statement, and then a second rebuttal round, and then the questions. Now we're gonna open up uh, voting now. So this is the link to, uh, you can vote right now. So it's pollev.com slash KP157. So let's see if the votes are starting to come in. So you can vote right now. So when you say vote right now, you mean the correct way or to vote right? Actually, how you feel right now. Like you look at the resolution um, and then uh, and then vote, uh, vote with your heart. So <laughs> you can um, you have to go to the URL to enter the vote. Um, and then, you know, hopefully we'll start to get a tally on that. Let's give this a, a couple of minutes and then. Um, you know, while, while we're waiting for votes to come in, um, we can ask, we can go over, you know, what interesting work our panelists are, have been working on. Um, so, uh, Dr. Kwan, you just had, um, you were on TV recently talking about the numbers, I guess, uh, in Ontario. How's yeah, that so uh, <laughs> I think the numbers have been getting more reassuring over the past week or so. Um, if you guys have been seeing the ICU emissions, they have been pretty stable and actually slowly decreasing over the past two weeks. Um, the number of new cases is also slowly trending down in the 300s and um, the number of active cases are also past the peak and coming down very slowly. So hopefully it continues. Okay, so the, I think it'll be interesting to see if um, most of our cases are still coming from long-term care and how many are happening in the general community. Like I know from Ontario, we're planning some opening in, on Tuesday next week. Um, I think Alberta and BC are already uh, more advanced and they're, I think they've opened this week. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I think that uh, I'm a little bit apprehensive about the opening on Tuesday for Ontario. Uh, the majority of our cases are still in the community, not in long-term care, but long-term care definitely accounts for overwhelming uh, proportion of deaths. So there's still a lot uh, we have to do before a safe reopening. Okay. I'm just looking at the votes. Is there any way we can just not have the debate and just say that this is the, the final answer? <laughs> well, it's quite dramatic. Um, so Ken's got his work uh, cut out for him. So we've got 75% um, believe um, we should be having um, universal, ma universal masking, 76, sorry, 7%, and then 17% undecided. So basically, um, the way we'll decide the winner is if there's a shift in these numbers. Um, if it goes towards uh, the no or the yes, that will determine, um, the difference will determine who the winner is. So I'm going to lock uh, the responses now, and then we'll uh, reopen um, at, uh, after the debate. Okay, so let's um, start off with opening statements. Why don't you go ahead, Joe? So you you have four minutes. Uh, we're going to uh, ding you with a bell when your time is up. I'm absolutely honored to have the opportunity to discuss this topic in a public forum, especially that it gets to be with my most learned colleague, Ken Milne, EBM specialist in emergency medicine guru and ex communicator extraordinaire. And one of the most fascinating aspects of this is we're all, here we are, two months after the pandemic touched down in our little corner of the world. And we as a society are barely even talking about this public health measure. In the world, 103 countries, 13 US states, over 2 billion people either have mandated mask laws or have innate mask use of over 80%. Here in Canada, we have mandatory mask laws for, um, let me check my notes here, um, zero, zero people. And um, in, in the old medical adage, never be the first nor the last doctor to use a new intervention. 
we are at risk of becoming the latter. It seems to be accepted now that public masking works. It's quite the evolution. Six weeks ago, the recommendation was to only wear a mask if you were symptomatic. Next, you can think about the option of possibly thinking about wearing a mask or not. Now, this is a good idea. We strongly recommend it. It's time to take that next step and make masks mandatory. The big shift came when we learned about the frequency of asymptomatic, presymptomatic, and posse-symptomatic spread. This is what made the sequel, SARS-2, so much more dangerous than the original SARS-1. In the first iteration in 2003, only sick people were infectious. Now we know peak spread of COVID-19 occurs from 36 hours before the onset of symptoms to five days after, and that approximately 50% of this transmission occurs in that first presymptomatic period, never mind the posse-symptomatic and asymptomatic spreaders. There's a, a paradigm in safety science called the Swiss cheese model. Think of every public health intervention as a layer trying to prevent spread. The more layers we add, the safer we become. Our key layers so far have been, don't go out if you're sick, temperature checks at hospitals and other sites, lockdown on communities, robust testing and contact tracing, physical distancing more than two meters if you leave the home, and copious hand hygiene. Well, because of pre-symptomatic spread, two of those layers, layers instantly become more full of holes. But don't leave the home if you're sick and temperature checks. But because if you can't fully feel, because you can fully feel well and have a normal temperature and still be a typhoid Mary, which remain, leaves the remaining four. And guess what? We're starting to remove one of those layers, lockdowns. Which brings us to masks, just adding another layer of protection. And important to note, this is in addition to all those other layers. So if we are in agreement with Dr. Tan and the other Chief Medical Officer of Health that, a mask work, that masks work well for source control, then we need to start getting a lot more people to wear masks. A lot more. Current data shows that 34% of Canada's have, Canadians have worn a mask in public in the last two weeks. And two good modeling papers show that in order for us to effectively drop the r naught of masks to below one, presuming the cloth masks are 60% effective at preventing source transmission, we need at least 60% of the population to be wearing masks, which is where we're mandating masks come in. We can see that with other public health interventions, masking nicely just doesn't cut it. Seatbelt use in Alberta prior to a mandate was 20%. After, 70%. Similar numbers for bicycle helmet laws, and other public health interventions. In summary, public masking is an effective, likely essential public health measure in a pandemic. Only mandates will get us to the adherence rates necessary to substantially drop the r naught, allowing us to decrease deaths, illness, and reopen the economy sooner and more robustly. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Joe. Uh, Jen. Thank you, Joe, for a very uh, strong opening statement. Um, as you said, over 100 countries have already mandated masks. Uh, unfortunately, Canada has not. Um, they are a key to uh, controlling asymptomatic spread, an additional layer to control the holes in Swiss cheese. Even the Chief Public Health Officer, Theresa Tam, agrees that it does, uh, it is effective against source control. It is an essential measure you're arguing uh, against COVID-19 as we are reopening. Let's hear from um, Ken. So uh, is the clock going? It is now. All right, well, I just wanted to say thank you. And I wanna be very clear at the start. I am not anti-mask wearing in public. My position is that I'm just not convinced that a mandatory mask for all policy in public in people that are preventing, uh, practicing physical distancing will prevent transmission of clinical disease. And that's an important distinction. And so mandatory, of course, means thou shalt, it's the law. Universal means there's no exception. And all means it applies to everyone. There are no exceptions. And in public, that's in the resolution, in public. And that's gonna be important later up. Now, clinical disease is also important. Now, I understand people may contact COVID-19 and may not be symptomatic. This is a disease-oriented outcome or a do, not a poo, a patient-oriented outcome. And I'm more concerned about poos than do's. But let's talk epistemology. 
Epistemology is the theory of knowledge, especially with regards to methods, validity, and scope. Epistemology is the investigation of what distinguished justified beliefs from opinion. And I want to have accept positions for good reason, not because it's someone's opinion. Now, I don't plan to have an argument from authority and will provide citations to support each of my claims. However, when it comes to interpreting the literature, I do think it's important to have an expertise in this specific area. Just because someone's a gifted clinician and an excellent advocate for environmental uh, concerns does not mean they're an expert at clinical epidemiology, biostatistics, or clinical appraisal. And it brings up the possibility of a Dunning-Kruger effects. Now, I've been doing medical research for 37 years, and I've published about 50 critical appraisals in the last few years, which are considered a higher level of evidence than a randomized clinical control trial on the EBM pyramid. I have advanced training in EBM and teach clinical epidemiology, biostatistics, critical appraisal skills, cognitive biases, and logical fallacies to masters and PhD students in the department of epidemiology. Now, let me be clear, I'm not making an argument from authority. It does not mean my position is correct on mask for all. However, I do present this evidence to the audience to decide if clinical epidemiology, biostatistics, and appraising the mask for all evidence is my lane. Now, in science, we start with the null hypothesis, and the null in this case would be there is no statistical difference between universal mandatory mask, cloth for all, masks for all, and not wearing a cloth mask in public. The burden of proof is on those making the positive claim or the claim that masks for all in public is superior in preventing transmission of clinical disease in those physically distancing. And without sufficient evidence, we should not accept the null hypothesis. We should accept the not accept the claim, and therefore we should accept the null hypothesis. Everyone will have different levels of evidence whether to accept a claim or not, but I want patients to get the best recommendations based on the best evidence. And that brings me up to the Peltzman effect or risk compensation and risk homeostasis. My opponent mentioned that briefly about seatbelt laws. Seatbelts um, were argued to be a benefit um, and would decrease accidents. Peltzman argued against this and said, it would be offset by non-fatal accidents and more pedestrian deaths because of driving intensity. It's interesting because his hypothesis was proven to be incorrect, wear a seatbelt people. But there are other examples in medicine where we have risk compensation where the benefits that we thought would be there are not there. This includes parachute equipment, um, advances in that technology to prevent morbidity and mortality from jumping out of a plane. This is called Booth's second law didn't work. Another example is condoms to prevent HIV transmission during a pandemic. No glove, no love, seems like a no-brainer, but the benefits weren't materialized because of risk compensation. And thank risk you. Thank, thank you, Ken. That's time. Thank you. So just to summarize your points, I think you made a plain that you're not arguing against masks, but you know, compulsory cloth masks at all times. Well, I, I did have just a, the concluding paragraph, if you'd like, because that's what it was. Okay. I totally uh, support him finishing his statement. Go ahead. This is just the concluding paragraph. Um, uh, there's not sufficient evidence to accept the claim that cloth masks will reduce clinical disease in public with people practicing physical distancing. And without sufficient evidence, we should accept the null. I'm not anti-mask, I'm pro-smart mask. So let's use mask where high risk is there, but not make it into law. I would rather convince people to do something for the right reasons then force them to do it for very weak reasons. Thank you so much, Ken. Um, so, uh, Joe, your chance to rebut three minutes. Uh, does Jen do a summary? Uh, no, like we, I'm doing Jen, uh, Ken's summaries. So okay. he did his own. <laughs> I didn't know you were summarizing. That's why I went over. Oh, no, no, it's perfectly great. Okay. Go ahead, uh, Joe. Wow, guys, I can't believe we started with an ad hominem attack. That is incredible. I even thought we weren't going to have an ad hominem attack. For those people who aren't up on their logical fallacies, an ad hominem attack means that you are judging the person's arguments based on who the person is, not what the evidence holds. And you've heard Ken Milne suggest that I should not win this because 
I am a lowly emergency medicine doctor. Well, guess what? I'm a lowly emergency medicine doctor that's been sitting in his basement reading studies on masks for seven weeks. <laughs> so the problem with COVID, and I love this quote, is that somebody once said, you know, there is no expert on COVID. We are starting from scratch. And so I think we need to take that um, and, and look, that just means that every time we look at the evidence, we have to judge the evidence on its own merits, not whether you're an ID specialist or whether you're uh, uh, epidemiologist or even if you're the chief medical officer of health of Canada. So I fully acknowledge the Dunning-Kruger effect is real. I fully acknowledge that I've had incredible self-doubts multiple times on this. Am I that old white guy sitting on my couch contemplating this issue um, and, and making up my own conspiracy? Am I the pandemic emergency medicine doctor? Is it possible that I could be that? I need to touch um, briefly. I, I think I'm going to leave the risk compensation discussion for the end because I think it's really, really important that we identify what the harms of masks are. And I quite frankly think the evidence is not there, but I am going to leave that for my conclusion. And I think I'll just leave it at that. Judge me on my arguments, not on my bad hair. Thank, thank you, Joe, for your uh, rebuttal. So uh, Ken has suggested maybe uh, a lowly ER doctor would not be a valid uh, uh, person to provide arguments. But as Joe has said, uh, there's no experts on COVID. We're all sitting in our basements of reading COVID literature uh, from morning to night. So we should be judging arguments on merits. Um, he has mentioned that there's a lack of harm for cloth masks, which we will uh, hear more about later. Okay, so um, now um, to Ken for his rebuttal. Three well, minutes. I love talking logical fallacies and you'll be, you'll be um... You'll be interested to know that I did not create an ad or commit an ad hominem attack because I specifically said all of those credentials should not be an argument from authority. And I never said the term lowly emergency doctor, did I? In fact, I only said positive things about my opponent being an excellent advocate for environment. I only said positive things. I never said negative things. And so that would be a straw man argument where you misrepresent my argument to make it easy to knock down. I never challenged his position on based on who he was. And also, I didn't even mention the word harm. And yet the moderator brought in harm and said, I, I said there was no harm. I never stated there, there was no harm. I talked about the Peltzman effect negating the benefit. You need to listen carefully because that is an important distinction. Also, the moderator did mention that uh, these things were known to be key things to prevent asymptomatic transmission. I can't wait for her to produce that evidence that says that wearing a cloth mask in public is a key to preventing transmission. I look forward to seeing that evidence. But I'm not here to talk about the moderator. I'm here to talk about other things. One other thing that I wanted to talk about in my rebuttal was um, unanticipated consequences. This is by Prasad et al. in a paper of 2014, talking about the unintended uh, behavioral responses by patients and physicians to healthcare interventions that may explain why some healthcare interventions seem logical and foolproof, but may not demonstrate real world benefit. So here's my example. This is the only example I'm going to give electronic health records. Who doesn't love their electronic health record? Who doesn't want to embrace their health record? Of course it reduces prescription errors, but it increases a whole bunch of other errors and it slows us down, leads to burnout, and burnout is associated with worse patient, patient outcomes. And the goal of an EHR was not to worsen overall patient care. An example of unintended consequences. Good intentions, but they didn't materialize with the positive benefit. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ken. Um, so just to summarize, um, addressing um, the arguments that uh, Joe made about ad hominem attacks, also mentioned the Peltzman effect about uh, negating the benefit um, and that you dispute if that there's any evidence that there's any preventative effect of wearing masks in public. 
Um, you also mentioned uh, an unanticipated um, and unintended behavioral responses, like your example with the EHRs, that EHRs were supposed to bring efficiency and improve patient care, but they've just led to more burnout. So uh, thank you so much. Now to the second um, statement, uh, affirmative statement, four minutes to Joe. Let's dig a little bit deeper on the evidence behind public masking. A foundation of EBM is the pyramid of evidence, with the pinnacle being systemic re systematic reviews and randomized control trials. There are five, count that, Ken, five randomized control trials that look at the value of masks as personal protective equipment, meaning for controlling the wearer from getting infected. Four of these support the utilities of masks to this. And this has been enough to allow the Cochrane database of systematic reviews to label masks as a reasonable option to stop the spread of respiratory viruses. But there's a different way of looking at that. That's looking at masks not as PPE, but using masks as source control so that they're using a mask to prevent an infected person from infecting others. And this really hasn't been studied in a systemic fashion, in a systematic fashion. In particular, there's never been a good RCT looking at this issue at a population level rather than at the, envision scale, at the individual scale. I can envision how you would have to go about this. Pick two similarly sized cities, say Edmonton and Calgary or Oshawa and Kitchener. Make sure each city starts with the same percentage of infected people, then tell the people of Calgary to wear masks and forbid the Edmontonians from wearing them at all. Make sure that each city otherwise behaves absolutely identically, and then at the end, measure the prevalence. So you can see how this kind of gets impossible to get this level of evidence for, um, for a population. These natural experiments are so hard to control for. Yet policymakers still have to make a decision, despite this absence of gold standard evidence. This is where the precautionary principle comes into play. If you're releasing a chemical into the environment and the possible harms totally outweigh the possible benefits, don't do it. Here we have the opposite, where the possible benefits of the intervention are so immense. Thousands to tens of thousands of lives saved, a reopened economy, and healthcare dollars saved. And the possible harms are facial dermatitis and some destroyed t-shirts. If that's the case, the precautionary principle says you go ahead with the intervention. Fortunately, we're not just working in a complete information vacuum, just the randomized control trial vacuum. There are other levels of evidence we can use. Observational data, case control studies, lab bench experiments, and even anecdotes are still on the hierarchy of evidence that can be used by policymakers. Lab bench experiments, we know this virus is 125 nanometers in diameter. We know that the virus is spread by droplets and that speech produces droplets of one to 10 micrometers and that surgical masks filter 89% of particles larger than 0 0.02 micrometers and cloth masks 49 to 85%, depending on the material used. Case control trials. In the 2003 SARS epidemic, 28% of the infected were habitual mask wearers versus 59% of the non-infected. Observational. Every country that has mandated masks prior to April 1st has substantially bent the curve, and many have successfully reopened their economy without the reintroduction of a COVID wave. This includes South Korea, Taiwan, Austria, and Czech, uh, the Czech Republic. This is for sure only a hypothesis generating and not a conclusion, as there are so many confounders. And correlation is not the same as causation can, but pretty powerful nonetheless. I know which curve I'd rather be on. Anecdotal. This choir super spreader event where 52 out of 60 choir members got infected, likely from a single symptomatic member, although there were maybe some other asymptomatic choir members infected from another rehearsal that were seven days previous. The authors themselves from the CDC surmise that face coverings may or may not can have prevented such transmission. And don't get me started that we haven't applied the cigarettes evidence filter the rigorous evidence filter to the benefits and harms of two meter distancing, school closures, lockdowns, and the myriad of other public health interventions. I would submit that using the terms, there is no evidence to indicate should be replaced by the term, there are no RCTs supporting this, but there is alternate sources of evidence we, we should base our policy decision on. If there's Thank a high likelihood much. of immense benefit to society from mandating masks and a low likelihood of harm, policymakers should err on the side of mandating masks. Call code white, call code white. <laughs>
Thank you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Joe. Um, as a moderator, I'm only uh, repeating the arguments Joe has done, and I'm just summarizing. So I would not want to debate you, Ken, I would lose. Um, so Joe talks about um, the evidence behind uh, public masking, the EBM period, uh, pyramid. Um, there may be no RCTs for COVID uh, and masks, but there have been some that have been useful in other situations. Um, masks can be source control or PPE, and he talks about um, how it may be uh, a precautionary principle for policymakers to make that decision before there are full RCTs. He has also uh, reviewed um, a summary of some other trials, including anecdotes or about how mask hate may have more uh, benefits um, for both economy and health. Great. Um, I love that the debate's getting punchy, but respectable. We're not quite at the, uh, <laughs> the fight stage yet. So. Oh, the gloves are coming off. The gloves are coming off. Okay, Ken, you've got four minutes. All right. So first of all, how many logical fallacies can somebody say in a short period of time? Straw man argument, talking about other um, interventions, that has no relevance to whether this argument is correct special pleading, shifting of the burden of proof, bandwagon effect. I can't believe you use that one. Well, every other country is doing it. Well, if every other kid jumped off a cliff and the anecdotal evidence, but let's get into my rebuttal or my uh, second set. My second set of information is about, there's 195 countries in the world, most of them have COVID. Why did my opponent only mention some of the countries who had a mask for all policy? A systematic review, which is the highest level of the EBM pyramid, would have checked all the countries and explicitly stated why some countries were included and excluded and then compared who had a mask policy and its association with COVID. If he wants to do a systematic review on observational studies, it's called the Moose criteria. Only picking some of the study, uh, countries is selection bias. So let's go with an article that looked at the top eight countries in the world. Three out of the eight had a mask policy, a mask for all policy. That means five didn't. Okay, so masks clearly isn't a reason or required to be in one of the top eight countries. But let's look at what else was associated with that. Seven out of the eight were led by women. This is 233% greater association than a mask for all policy. Now to be fair, that's a relative number, not an absolute number. The absolute number would be 50% greater association of a woman head of state than having a mask for all position. And this could be described as a number needed to treat for benefit. In this case, the number of needed for women leaders is two. I wonder why my opponent is spending so much time advocating for a mask for all policy when clearly I've demonstrated with the data that he should be advocating for a woman prime minister. Now, let's look at the mandatory part. Nunavut is the largest part of Canada by geographic area. The vast majority are Inuit, and they have this many cases, zero. I feel very cautious about, as a white European descent man from the South, of telling an Aboriginal population that they have to have a law to do this. But it gets even more complicated when you bring religion into this. Bill 21 in Quebec forced people to remove their facial coverings when dealing with government officials. And this was disproportionately targeting Muslim women. Now, the Supreme Court has been asked to look into this because Theresa Tam has said, we recommend people wear a mask. What is it? What kind of mixed message is that giving to the religious community, the religious minority? We have conflicting laws. One says, take off your mask. One says you have to wear a mask. Which one is it? And I will summarize. The observational dis, uh, data does not support a mask for all is necessary. I advocate for more women leaders and in particular to have our first elected woman prime minister and laws need to be thought through carefully to not infringe on Aboriginal rights, religious beliefs or other serious concerns. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you. Were the gloves off for that? Did I, did I get like, you know, yeah, I believe you did. It was great. So Ken um, had a great summary of his own, but just to quickly go over his points um, that, you know, out of, of the eight countries that are doing the best with COVID, only three have asked mask for all policies, five didn't. Um, you know, what's correlating better is that seven out of eight of these countries have women leaders. So we should just 
you know, put Christian Freeland as prime minister instead of Trudeau and we'd do better. Um, and that there's complicated cultural complications. How could we tell communities um, what to do? Um, the case of the Inuit was brought forward in Nunavut, which has zero cases, and Quebec, which has this complicated mess with uh, face covering laws. So I think great points. Um, I think we'll go to the rebuttal by Joe. Um, you have, and closing arguments, rebuttal and closing arguments, uh, four minutes. I've got some written closing arguments, but I just want to take um, take on some of uh, the, the rebuttal of the rebuttal. So to be clear, when I was specifying countries that um, have succeeded, these are all countries that either have innate use of masks more than 80% um, or mandatory mask laws prior to April 1st. And those countries would be Austria, the Czech Republic, Japan, South Korea, China, Singapore, Taiwan, and I've probably forgotten a few. Um, there are some countries that have succeeded without mandatory mask laws. They're all islands, which is super weird. But Iceland, um, New Zealand, and Australia, um, there's really hard to find people who, uh, countries that have, have really succeeded aside from that. If we're going to talk number needed to treat, let's do a thought experiment. I've already stated that there's good evidence that cloth masks give 60% source control. So if we look at the country of Canada with 36 million people, and we're expecting 70% of the country to get infected, which is going to be 21.6 million, and we have source control preventing, uh, or at least uh, probably arguable, at least delaying this um, infection by, by a period of time. That brings 13 million people that are going to uh, be prevented or delayed, and about 194,000 lives saved. So there's some numbers for you. It's unfortunate that the same level of evidence for the benefits of masks isn't being applied to the harms of masks. Infections from the outside of masks, we hear this. Definitely an issue in the emergency room where we're working with COVID positive patients. For the public, unknown. Improper doffing and donning, certainly a concern that I've heard. Again, an issue in the emergency room for the public, I don't know. Risk compensation theory. I could go on a 20 minute diatribe on why this is a theoretical malarkey. And I will if I'm asked, but there's literally no evidence for this for any public health intervention. Seatbelts, maybe individuals drive faster if they're wearing seatbelts, but as a whole as the population, we do better with seatbelt laws. Ski helmets, same. Bicycle helmets, same. Injection drug use, uh, safe injection sites, same. Sex education for teenagers does not increase teen pregnancy risk. As a population, all of these interventions have been proven to not have risk compensation theory associated with them. There are still questions to be answered. What's the role of governments in supplying masks to those who can't make them, and particularly the homeless, seniors, and disabled? Where does the mandate apply? Whenever you leave the house? Whenever you can't physically distance more than two meters? Only in stores, transit, and workplaces? And Ken's right. Does this apply to the entire country? Only in areas where there's community spread? In particular, to those areas without community spread to prevent the spark from igniting the fire? Do you really want uh, uh, COVID-19 to come to Callowitz? Probably not. But these details are best left to the policymakers. With 103 countries ahead of us, we can look to other jurisdictions to help inform these best practices. This isn't a game. We're having fun here with our discussion of levels of evidence, but this isn't just an esoteric exercise. The same debate is occurring in the offices of Canada's politicians and its chief medical officers. And if they ignore the copious evidence surrounding the need for mandatory masking, I am concerned people are going to die. Real people, not statistics. Every death is a parent, a grandparent, a loved one. Lockdowns are going to be reenacted. The economy is going to suffer. Action on the climate crisis is going to be delayed. And all of that devastates me. And that's why I'm putting myself out there, trying to fight for the truth and for a better, safer, healthier pandemic response. I protect you. You protect me. We all protect society. Thank you, Joe.
Thank you, Joe. So to summarize, um, Joe brings up that for some reason, islands are the ones um, that are successful without masks for some reason, but many of the successful countries have uh, innate use of masks or mandatory laws. His thought experiment uh, shows that if there is a 60% effectiveness for source control, it could save possibly 194,000 lives. Um, he also says that there is no evidence of risk compensation in other public health interventions, such as seatbelts, safe injection sites, or safe uh, sex education. Um, he uh, is concerned that um, we must uh, control the pandemic with um, focusing on the mandatory mask laws, but we can learn the details from other countries who have uh, implemented um, these laws. And he uh, finishes with saying, I protect you, you protect me and we protect society. Thank you, Jen. Uh, just to our uh, Muslim viewers uh, observing Ramadan, now you can eat and drink, so good. In uh, Ontario. <laughs> in Ontario, sorry. East no Toronto-centric, you people. <laughs> That's what we're guilty of. Um, now for closing statements and rebuttal, uh, four minutes to Ken. Australia will be shocked to find out that they're an island, not a continent. Um, all the modeling and hand-waving needs to be demonstrated. You can't just assert it. Clearly, I didn't do an effective job on knowledge translation because I gave two examples, condoms and parachute technology as risk compensations, and I have citations for both of them. So obviously, there are cases where risk compensation does impact. And if my opponent only counts his hits, and doesn't account for his misses, he'll always be batting a thousand. Now, the mask for all policy, I assume he doesn't advocate for masks under the age of two, like the CDC, the AAP, and the Canadian Pediatric Society says that will be a choking hazard and it's at risk. And all the appeals to emotion. What if all these people die? Well, what if all of them die because of this? Right? We can't just assume it. It's presuppositional. But I left my trump card until the end. Uh, the CDC recommended in the U.S. universal mask wearing uh, April 13th. There were 500,000 deaths or 500,000 cases and 30,000 deaths approximately. One month later, after masks were in introduced, it has tripled to 1.5 million cases and 90,000 deaths. I would not consider that a success of masks for all policy after one month. Now, I'm not anti-mask in public. I've said that. I'm for smarter masks. One size did not fit all. Just because it works in Calgary doesn't mean it works in my small town with zero cases. We're physically distancing on 100-acre farms, and this just could be another example of urban splaining. Urban splaining is where a clinician from an urban environment comments or explains something to me as a rural clinician in a condescending, overconfident, and often inaccurate or oversimplified manner. I'm not saying I know the answer. Richard Feynman famously said, it's okay to say I don't know. And I'm comfortable with saying I don't know. But the whole idea of the appeal to emotion cuts both ways. What if they're wrong? Will these social measures like mask for all have risk compensation or have no impact or a negative impact? I'm not asserting anything. I'm saying I don't know but the strength of a recommendation should be proportional to the evidence. And we've been fooled many times in the past. So I'm gonna ask people to consider the veil of ignorance. Before you make a law, philosopher John Rawls suggested we should imagine that we sit behind a veil of ignorance, keeping us from knowing which group we'll be in. And by ignorance of our circumstances, we can more objectively consider how society should operate. So according to Rawls, Approaching tough issues through a veil of ignorance and applying these principles can help us decide how more fairly to balance these rules that a society should have so it's a more just society. And unless we operate under a veil of ignorance, we risk being dictated by tyranny of the majority. As a privileged white male rural doctor, I'm not going to tell people what they have to do because I may conflict with people's religious beliefs people's uh, children that could choke on this, other cultural preferences, or even get involved in the people's bedrooms because asymptomatic transmission data is mostly from people living together, sleeping together, pooping together, not in public together. 
So I'm just encouraging reason combined with kindness. And instead of a mask for all policy, let's do smart masks. We can educate people when to wear them and when best to wear them in high prevalence areas. But I will not force people to wear a mask, shame them or blame them or fine them or jail them for not wearing a mask if asymptomatic and properly socially distancing. So I'll finish with a quote. This is from a New England Journal paper. We are living through unprecedented biopsychosocial crisis. Physicians must be the voice of reason and lead by example. We must reason critically and reflect on our biases that may influence our thinking process. Critically appraise evidence in deciding how to treat patients and use anecdotal observations only to generate hypotheses for trials that can be conducted with clinical equipoise. We must act swiftly and carefully, but with caution and reason. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Um, just summarizing your points, um, I think you, you call out against appeals to emotion, um, which is easy to, is tempting to do. Um, that, you know, we should have the weight of evidence should be, you know, are we doing more harm than, um, than good if we do something mandatory like this? And that we should not uh, be afraid to say, I don't know, or we don't know what's gonna happen with this. Uh, a recommendation of this magnitude um, should be proportional to its benefit. And you know, you're know you arguing for smart masks in high prevalence, high risk areas, um, and do things um, you know, uh, that's tailored to each location and not you know, uh, an urban center that has high cases, shouldn't tell a small, center, small town like yours that has zero cases what to do. So. Great, I think um, that was a very productive round of arguments. We're gonna go to some questions. So I'm gonna hand it over to Samir who's been collecting your questions from the Facebook live stream um, and what was messaged to us before. So go ahead, Samir. Great, thanks very much, Kashif. Uh, thanks very much to both of our debaters for uh, exceptional performances and for presenting both your pieces so nicely. Um, these are the questions that we've collated across. I'm going to pose them across to each of you sequentially. Questions will be posed differently to each of you, and you'll have 60 seconds to reply to the questions. The first question is for Joe. The question is, what do you think should be the ramifications if someone does not wear their mask and does so belligerently in society if universal masking becomes policy? You know, I've seen some really horrific scenes out of the United States in some places where there's mandatory masking of people being hauled off. I, you know, people, there, there was a security guard shot in one of this place in the United States. And, and, and so that makes me really nervous that we need to get this right. I don't think we're quite as crazy as the United States. I don't think we'll probably have that kind of, of, of backlash, but I think it should be pretty minor. I see three warnings and a demerit. Like for me, the act that's important is mandating because I know that psychologically that changes things for citizens. Suddenly they realize that this, they're part of the society. They need to play their part. Um, so I think it should be minimal. I think $25 fine a day's community service um, after three, three warnings. Great. Thank you, Joe. Uh, the second question is for Ken. So I'm not supposed to respond to, you know, how $25 might not be minimal to somebody of lower socioeconomic status if they can't pay it or don't have demerit points because they can't own a car. Are we going to put them in jail? Like, what do you do? Thanks very much, Ken. The second question is for Ken from Saipan on Facebook. Just like herd immunity for vaccinations, why can 90% of people wearing masks not give the same herd protection? This will only be achieved if masks are mandated. Um, because masks uh, operate through a different principle than vaccination and herd immunity. Herd immunity is based on the adaptive immune system, whereas masks is source control. And there's no good evidence that an asymptomatic person wearing a cloth mask will prevent transmission of disease, even if they're, you know, when they're physically distancing. And the idea is, this whole idea of like physical distancing, sheltering at home was supposed to flatten the curve, not decrease mortality and morbidity. It was just supposed to stretch it out so we could accommodate it in the healthcare system. The net effect was just supposed to be spread out. So what we really wanna do is at least have time until we can develop hopefully a vaccine, but it's not the same as wearing a mask. Um, and if I could just rebut uh, for, for five seconds, I would say that the outcome is the same. What you're trying to do is decrease the transmissibility and the infective rate of, of people. And so it doesn't really matter 
that there are different mechanisms doing so. If immunization prevents 60% of the population from getting infected and a mask does the same thing, innately they actually have the same effect. But we have to prove that the mask does it. And we've proven that vaccines work. You know, one of the most successful things ever done in public health is vaccination. I hate agreeing with you, but you're totally right. So it's a false element. The next question is for both of you. Uh, we'll start with Joe. Uh, the question is from Blair C. on uh, Facebook. What is the one country that you think has done the best job in containing coronavirus through policy so far? And where do you think mask policy fit in to why they were able to achieve that? I think the story I like the best is the Czech Republic. The reason is, is because it was so grassroots. There was um, really a momentum that occurred amongst the population to start creating masks and sharing masks. And then the policymakers followed that. And since then, their cases have dropped, their death rates are dropped. I mean, we still have like more than 100 deaths a day in our country. And the Czech Republic has bouncing around two to seven deaths a day. And they've started to open up. And they've been opened up for weeks and they haven't had a resurgence. And so, um, and, and I would just like to say that I think there's some pretty good examples in Asia as well. And I don't want to discount that. I just know the Czech Republic story better. Ken? So I would say that uh, New Zealand, of course, uh, has done the best uh, with a woman leader and no mask policy. But Norway, Finland, Denmark, Iceland, they've all done fantastic in the top eight. And they don't have mask policies either. And I don't think all of them are islands. And of course, Australia would be considered more apples to apples than the Czech Republic to Canada. Uh, but New Zealand would be my top pick. They don't have a mask policy. They have a fantastic, empathetic, sympathetic, um, just a brilliant leader there. And uh, I, I think they've done a fantastic job. And, and I, once again, I, I have to agree with Ken. New Zealand has done an amazing job, but they also did it with a lockdown that occurred when they only had a handful of infections in the country. And we cannot go back to that. And we've got a dumpster fire as our neighbor. So. Well, you're playing my trump card now. <laughs> our next question is for Joe. It's also for Blair C. on Facebook. I'm concerned about the possibility of people using masks so terribly they'll make the situation worse touching the masks and doffing and donning badly. Do you think that this is something that is to a detriment to a universal masking policy? Well, in my main arguments, I did point out that there's zero evidence that that's an issue at a population level. I totally agree that we saw this with Ebola. We saw this with SARS, but it was healthcare workers that were dealing with infected patients, not as source control for the general public. So um, if we're going to apply the same level of evidence uh, I think we need to apply the same level of evidence to the harms as we do to the to the benefits. Um, and I, I'd just like to finally uh, finish up by saying that we teach citizens how to drive a car. That's a really complicated thing to teach people how to do. I'm certain our public health officials can teach them how to wear a mask properly. Ken? Great. Uh, next question is for Ken. Uh, this is from uh, Kapil Sarin Kana. The precautionary principle has been used quite substantially in policy for numerous countries, particularly when it comes to public health. What is your one key reason why you think the precautionary policy will not occur uh, as something that would substantiate mandatory mask wearing as a policy in Canada? Um, because the preca uh, precautionary dilemma, uh, who decides where to draw the line? It's not dichotomous, mask or no mask there can be smart mask in between and risk is on a spectrum. And we can all agree, Joe and I both agree the science on mask is unclear. And I would also agree that the potential outcome is terrible death. But what we don't know is the probability of that outcome happening. And Joe is predisposed that, um, that it will cause a benefit. And I'm just not convinced that it will cause a benefit. We were right with seatbelts, but we were not correct with other things. And so I don't think that the precautionary principle can be applied because we do not know 
and I know that the precautionary principle is about we don't not know, but on that spectrum, it's way down towards the we don't know, and we don't have evidence, uh, enough evidence or sufficient evidence of benefit, so I don't accept the claim. So I think it's the precautionary dilemma. And I'd just like to counter that. I think what Ken advises is 100% correct for most things in medicine. Right now, we are dealing with mathematics. We're dealing with logarithmic growth, which means we have to make decisions fast without all the evidence. And the real question is, is how do policymakers make that decision without all the evidence in front of them? But I do that every day, just like you do in the emergency department. We're thin slicers, and we don't have great evidence that informs our care. And we still move forward and make decisions. But what we do is we do it in an evidence-based model where we have the literature which informs our care, our clinical judgment, and then we engage with the patient. And it's where those things overlap that we have evidence-based medicine. And I would imply or, or assert that we should do the same thing with our public policy. If we start legislating these types of things, I really think it hurts the doctor-patient relationship, the therapeutic alliance. And if we do it on such weak evidence, we lose credibility in the future. One last question to each of you. Uh, this question is for Joe. Are you not worried that wearing a mask will stop essential workers and other workers from being able to do their jobs as well as they possibly could? And the specific example is teachers. Do you think teachers will not be able to convey things as well in the classroom environment when things open up in the fall with a mask on? Yeah, they, they probably wouldn't be able to do their job as effectively if they're in the hospital or at home because they're sick. Um, I heard this argument with masking in, in the uh, in the in the hospitals that we should save our masks for um you know we don't want to run out of masks so therefore we shouldn't all be using masks we're going to lose this doctor patient relationship but the reality is is once we started seeing a whole units of of healthcare workers uh nurses going down from from the illness um it became quite clear that the thing that was valuable wasn't the masks it was the the nurses and so what we really want to do is have healthy productive workers. And there may be situations where it's totally not appropriate to be wearing a mask. And those exceptions need to be identified and, and accepted. But for the most part, this idea that if we cannot physically distance more than two meters, whether you're in a workplace or in a grocery store, um, if we can't do that physically distance, and I think Ken and I agree on this, we should be wearing masks. And the, what we really differ on is whether it needs to be legislated or not. And the last question for Ken, um, if masking is not universal and not mandated, what are the specific areas that you believe that masks should be deployed on in order to, uh, to control the virus? What are the specific uh, uh, um, types of people who should be wearing masks? So this gets to the whole idea of an evidence-based medicine answer. And that answer is, it all depends. And each situation is unique and needs to be clinically judged individually. And so you've got to look at the potential benefit and the potential harm. And so if you have healthcare workers who are asymptomatic, on one end of the spectrum, healthcare workers that are asymptomatic, but they're working in a long-term care facility, a nursing home, a retirement home, where the risk is huge and those people are sheltered there and can't really leave, then I think that you know wearing a mask is really, really important. But the flip side of that is if you're a farmer in a rural community and you live on 100 acres and you go into the grocery store and there's only five other people in a grocery store that's the size of three football fields and you say hey to Joe and you take care of your neighbors and you know each other, you see each other, you care about each other, you're not going to get up in their grill and start coughing on them and hope, geez, I don't care. You know, it's not about me. It's not about them. It's about, you know, like, I, I really think that each situation is different and it all depends. And there's two extremes and it's on a spectrum. And we should be smart about how we're using our masks rather than saying one size fits all. That's it. It's the law. Great. Thanks very much to the debaters for the questions. And thanks, everybody, for putting your questions and comments in the Facebook live feed. I'll pass things back to Kashif. Okay, so uh, we've uh, reopened uh, the poll. Um, so this is the link. While everyone is voting, let's we can just have a bit of a free discussion. I wanted to thank 
um, both participants for really sticking their necks out to do this. Um, it's really difficult. It's an, it's an emotionally charged time. Um, I think everyone really wants this to be over. And it's, you know, I think this is probably the defining crisis of, for, of many of our lives. Um, so I wanted to thank, thank both participants, especially, um, you know, arguing against what, you know, the consensus was for Ken, like, you know, you're, you had 77% of the group against you. So I think it took some bravery for both of you to do this. And, you know, I wanted to, you know, we don't have real applause, but we got a simulated applause for both of you. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, Any thanks. Final for, comments that are not about masking? Yeah, well, we, we can do a free discussion. We're just gonna let the, the groups, um, the membership vote. And sure. we'll see um, as they come in, and then we'll uh, we'll see how it's going. Would it be okay um, uh, before we get into a discussion? Um, can I make a statement? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Thank you very much for asking me to be involved in this. Um, if nothing else, I got to meet Joe. We got to talk in advance. He is a wonderful individual. I respect him immensely, despite all the banter and all the craziness. Um, I, I'm, I've become a Joe fan, and believe me, I would want to be at the table where he's advocating for well-being, because I think we both are advocating for well-being, and we both want what's best for our communities. We may differ only slightly, actually, about the mandatory thing, because I think we agree in the high-risk populations and low-risk populations, but if nothing else, I hope that, Joe, I've gained a friend. <laughs> I was going to say something similar, but it was mostly going to be like, you find some awesome gifts. <laughs> but, but, but I wanted to echo that. We actually had a phone call last week where we were going to um, decide whether to go forward with this debate. Um, and it, it is intimidating because uh, Ken's a pretty, pretty big name. Um, and, and I'd already, I believe it or not, guys, I've already had some of these debates you know, at the bedside and, and at the nurse's station, and they haven't always been fun and collegial. Um, and with Ken, it has been, and um, I, I learned stuff. And he didn't say the word Bayesian once, which I, I promised I wouldn't. So, <laughs> so I, I, you know, it looks like there's an evolving uh, consensus, kind of like you know, this is so Canadian of us, right? We're all praising each other now, but I think you know. Uh, you know, Ken made some excellent points about, um, you know, smart masking, mask for all versus smart masking. You know, I, I saw a bunch of patients today who work in construction sites and they had the foreman up in their grill, like barking at them. Like that shouldn't be happening. Like that, that employer should be mandated to make them, everyone wear masks. But, you know, like you said, you know, a giant Walmart with five people in it, like that doesn't make sense. So I think, you know, if we could all work together on a smart masking or, and as a part of the mask for all, as a thing what do you guys think well if we can teach them how to wear a mask we should be able to have the confidence that we can teach them when to wear a mask as well so i like to empower people i like to respect their agency and autonomy and i i, I do want people to do things for the right reasons not because it's paternalistic and i told you so i want them to come to that conclusion that you know what i need to wear this mask to protect someone else and I'm willing to do that. That's why I'm not anti-mask. I'm just smart mask. Yeah, I would just say uh, I, I admire his faith in, in humanity. Um, I, I haven't seen as much evidence for that in my hometown. Um, I go to the grocery store and people walk right by me uh, and don't seem to have too much of a concern for the two-meter distancing. I see a very low level of, of mask wearing in my hometown. And uh, that makes me... Um, recognize that leadership's really important and our leaders um, can help push this forward by, by saying this is so important to our society that we are going to ask you all to do this and there will be repercussions if you don't. Okay, so let's take a look at the results now. I think we've probably so. Um, can everyone see the screen? Oh! So it looks like uh, we had a shift from to the 77 down to 60 and then 7% up to 33%. So um, an undecided down to 7% from 16. So I believe Ken is the winner. So it's smart masks over masks for all, really. 
So congratulations. Um, I think some applause is uh, due here. <laughs> what, what? You know what, you know, I think, I think, you know, who really wins is the audience um, for hearing um, really thoughtful arguments, um, trying to flesh out a very difficult thing. And this will probably be the only time it happens in our lifetime, hopefully, that we have this kind of event. And if we can be respectful of each other, if we can be kind with each other, and if we can agree that we have common ground, that we want what's best for our community, we can find our way through this. And so I think that the audience wins. And by taking that information back to their own communities, their communities will win as well because they'll have a more nuanced discussion instead of that in your face. There's layers to this. There's nuance to this. There are exceptions and we need to be respectful of those things. And I think like, uh, like both of you mentioned, it requires leadership, I think, from you know, our political public health leaders to really get this ball rolling, as you mentioned. I've been impressed with our public health leaders. I mean, Dr. Tam and uh, others, I, I'm not, what, what's the name of your um, uh, Minister of Health in Alberta? She's excellent. Tina Henshaw and, and, um, and we have uh, Bonnie Henry next door in BC that are all doing amazing jobs. They're the real heroes. That just goes to my hypothesis that, well, women leaders, <laughs> but. Awesome. Well, um, thank you, everyone. So congratulations, Ken, but congratulations to everyone. I think, you know, this is probably the one place where we you can have a productive debate on this. So um, I think, you know, everyone who's listening and who's going to watch later, and I'll take this back to your patients and your contacts. I think the idea is, is masks, uh, smart masks, um, you know, masks in unsafe situations. I think we should be advocating for that because we don't even see that right now. Smart masks for all. Smart masks for all. Amakoto no